Welcome to the Anything Goes Podcast, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back, and we're talking about Dark Knight Returns Book 3, a.k.a. Hunt the Dark Knight. Now, when I decided to review this comic book, this graphic novel, I thought these episodes would come out a little bit closer to each other, and it'd be, alright, we'll maybe get this done in a few weeks or anything like that. Uh, I did not expect it to come out quarterly. <laughs> but that's how just life is, and so I'm just gonna have to live with that. But it, it is what it is. I mean, uh, no, I, I shouldn't say that. I hate that saying. I, I, that that saying drives me up, drives me up the wall because it, may, it makes you seem resigned, not proactive. So scratch that. It, this is just how life dealt uh, the cards to me, and I'm dealing with it. So. As you've listened to those two previous episodes, if you haven't, go back and listen to them. I've had one consistent co-host, somebody who is obsessed with this comic book. That is Scott from the Suicide Squadcast. So, Scott, welcome back. I am obsessed. <laughs> yes, I am obsessed. Yeah, it really is kind of funny thinking about. I can't even remember when we recorded book two. It's been that long. It's been a while, and like, do it like and we even said, like, we'll do this. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll be right on top, and we'll get it done. No ifs, ands, or buts. But well, I blame you. It's all I blame you entirely. I, I have no fault with this. I just wait for your. I just wait for you to call me, and like you know, it's like call me maybe. I'm just. Uh, I'm just uh, Tim, Tim disappears for for months on end. I don't know where he goes. Well, being so pale that I am, I have to <laughs> stay away from the sun, and so that's why uh, I, I do sometimes this part of the year I really enjoy. It. That's why my my outfits become completely black because I need to absorb as much uh, vitamin D as possible, and I can via the sun. And so I, mean, I think that's why during the summer, I, I, even though I love the beach, I, I burst into flames as soon as I hit the sand. <laughs> Oh, oh, you know, which, you, you know, of course, you're over there in Long Island. Come down, come on down to like Florida or like Gulf Shores. Let's, you, 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 you will, you will, you will, you will ship you back to Long Island in, in like an urn. You'll just be <laughs> ash at that point. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> like, well, well, we, we didn't have to check the bag for, if we're saying to come home, that's for sure. Um, it's been a while since I've been to Florida. It's, I haven't been down there since I was 18. Uh, actually, my 18th birthday, I wanted to go to Disney and Universal. So, and I remember like one day we did Magic Kingdom, and then very stupidly, I would say stupidly, there's poor planning. We ended up like, all right, we did Animal Kingdom, um, Epcot, and like alcohol around the world, which resulted in me being the designated driver to bring us to Universal Horror Nights later that night. And so, by the time we got to Universal, we've been out in the sun all day, so we're kind of just uh, been kind of zapped because of that. And they were on the Jaws right, like the last year they had it. And we're like, uh, this is very good. We should be more excited, but we're just, we can't be, we can't be bothered right now. Oh my God, there he is. Boom, the shark uh, explodes and everything. Yeah, so next time I go to Florida and to Disney, I will plan it out a little bit better. But before I... Uh, ramble on anymore let's jump into our review of it of the hunt the dark knight dark knight returns book three right now
Okay, so the book opens up, and we have uh, some former mutants are now part of the Nazi party here robbing a, a liquor store, and Batman in as dressed as an old woman who's trying to take him down. And for a while, I, like, is Bruno a man or a woman, or is she transgender? I, I, I'm still cl- unsure about this. All I know is that there's swastika boobs and swastika butt. That, I mean, that's that's all I know. This is the book. I remember when I was reading it, because remember the story. I read this book when I was seven. This was the book where, this, where it all went downhill. I mean, we start off with swastika boobs. A, you know, it's like, and I was amazed that they kept those for the animated movie. I was like, oh my god, you really, you went there. You really went there with Bruno. Okay. But, you know, I got Rob and Don. You know, Rob and Don are still there. You know, Rob and Don forever. So, <laughs> I, I still think it's hilarious to me that the book starts off with Superman narration. Mm. Like, I mean, the whole Bruce you idiot. <laughs> like, yep, man, I know who's talking. Okay. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know if it's man or what, because I, because even the liquor store owner is talking about nice work too, can barely see the stretch marks. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the face, the teeth, the weird, you know, flat top hairdo? I, I don't know, Tim. I just don't. It's strange. I think it's left ambiguous on purpose to make you wonder as a reader. So I'm like, okay. It is it is one of those burning questions I have from this, this book, even to this day. But I love the fact that um, the liquor store owner is not really intimidated by Bruno whatsoever. And like he has a chance to murder one of the gang members. And Batman warns is saying... You do that, you pull that trigger, and I'll be back for you, maintaining his code throughout. Yes, which, my God, that, that, that old lady costume is just, that's just disgusting looking. That, that, is, that is one awful looking outfit he's wearing. You, you, you have to admit that. And, of course, I love it how he's like, I wish I could say it was the suit that slows me down, that makes me sweat. And it's just, it's just more hints of, I'm old. I am. I've been out of the game for way too long, because I think, I think in the book it's only been like a few weeks since the end of book two. But I think when they did the animated movie, they were like, um, his arm has to heal. So I think there was like a, a a time jump of like three months between book two and book three, because in the original anim in the animated movie, this is where when the original part one part two uh, break. This is where it happens. So, like, when you bought the Part 2 movie, this is what Part 2 starts off with, yes. is this scene. Which makes more sense, the time jump, because of the training that Ro- that Carrie Kelly's Robin would have to go through before Batman would allow her to hit the streets with him. Yes, that is very true. Because she's, she's actually got some... She's actually got some skill in this, uh, in this book. Um, you know, by the fact that she's, you know shooting her slingshot at Bruno and Batman's like giving her orders like don't be seen don't be seen and the whole time we're getting you know we're getting the the news reports and I, and I love the this is where we get the awesome like everyone just sort of passing the buck from the president to the governor to the mayor to the commissioner and it's just it's that classic um I trust so and so well I trust so and so and it's like they just keep on passing the buck 
And it's like there's that excellent Frank Miller satire uh, of government happening all over again. Wasn't it Truman that said the buck stops here? Yes, it was Truman. He even had a sign on it on the uh, on the uh, on the desk that said the buck stops here. And this is most definitely not the buck stopping here. No, as shit rolls downhill. That's this is what the definition of this scene is. Oh my and, goodness. and we're just like, nope, nope. I I am I'm skewing myself from the situation right here. And it goes all the way back, all the way down to Commissioner Yindel. But you're right that it is cool to see Carrie Kelly's Robin in action here. In the next page, where we have um, she's shooting a slingshot. She hits uh, Bruno. But she is seen and is fired upon by Bruno. But luckily that Carrie Kelly's a, a good enough gymnast that she's able to hop on to the uh, fire escape above her and get out of the eyesight of Bruno. And she's like wondering where she is. But we're cross-cutting to stuff that's going on, including a, a gentleman who shall, who's at a newspaper stand saying that how... His entire stand was knocked over by a gigantic gust of wind, and he has no idea what it could have been. Oh, yes. It was faster than anything. And then, of course, the the newscasters. Because it's interesting, because it's basically showing that the newscast is in the future, and the scene that we're seeing with Batman and Robin and Bruno and, um, wink, wink, hint, hint, Superman, is actually like some sort of flashback. Because the the newscast is already reporting the events that we're seeing being played out with the superheroes, right? And I, I love the fact that like they that Miller kind of let's say pokes fun of the the qualities of Superman, like faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, and Two things I want to notice as we continue on, like, Bruno gets the drop on, like, Batman is able to get the drop on Bruno, even though um, he should be dead, but he got lucky that Bruno's a terrible shot. Uh, the, we have a close-up panel of the mask that of the old woman that Batman is wearing. It is, it is disgusting. No, oh, I would like to think that at that point the mask is, like, degenerating and, like, it's falling, the disguise is falling apart because of all the sweat and stuff. Ugh. It's gross. Bottom line, it's gross. But then we have um, Humanitarian of the Year pushing the dude in crutches onto the uh, subway lines and how he's vehemently believes like he's still in the right despite the fact as we as the reader of the audience realize no, he was in the wrong and he was being and he almost murdered somebody if it wasn't for the help of Superman um, stopping the train. Oh yeah, exactly. And then it's the it, it, it's it's this weird thing where Superman is still doing good things. I mean, I mean, Frank Miller gets a really bad rap for basically making Superman a villain, and and this is just showing you no Superman's still Superman. He's still doing the Superman things. He's just you know got this overriding loyalty to. You know, the United States government that just causes him to do some questionable things over the course of this book. Right. And that, like, you would, would it be a stretch to say that Superman is the protagonist of this story, of this book specifically? Like, he is the main character in it. 
Uh, you know, I don't know. This is definitely the book where, while Superman's been hinted at in other books, this is the one where he finally actually shows up. And it's just... I, I mean, I, I still feel like it's it's still Batman's... This is still Batman's story. So, I mean, I feel like Batman is still the protagonist. It's just that now... Superman is being introduced as a possible foil for Batman, and which will lead on to him being a flat-out antagonist by book four. Right. I mean, it's just like you said, how it opens up with Superman's narration specifically, and we get so much of his narration when we follow his plot line throughout this book. I mean, you could argue they're dual protagonists, but then again, Carrie Kelly gets her own um, interior narration when she's off at the uh, the fair and dealing with uh, I forget the character's name who's trying to blow up the uh, uh, the roller coaster. But I think it's really cool that we do not see Superman whatsoever; that he is oh, no. literally kept in the shadows, much like Batman. Yeah, we we see we see the effects of Superman. But we, you know, we get the blur. We see, you know, him wrap up Bruno in in pipes. We see the machine gun in, like completely on fire because of heat vision. And then we get Bruce talking to him because he knows that Superman can hear him. Like he's not even talking out loud. He's just talking at like normal volume, knowing that. You know, I love like, him just saying, "I'm busy tonight. You just cost me hours. Tomorrow morning, my place. Stay out of my way until then." I, I just, I just love how Bruce is still just like. Don't mess with me. Just seriously. This was this is my town. I'm handling this. And then you come in and like screw up my plans. Because, you know, Bruce knows that Joker is up to something. You know, it's like, and he's trying to figure this out. And now, and Bruno was his lead. But then because Superman comes in and just, quote, saves the day. Well, he blows his lead. Yeah, it's 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 like uh, like he was doing the right thing, but it cost Batman a lot of valuable time, and it's like what information they could have gotten out of Bruno could have saved lives further down the line. When it right. comes to the talk show, I mean, we ne- we'll we'll never know, but you could make the argument that that was he could have been partially responsible for it. But I love the fact that when we see. Superman comes shooting out of the ground. We just see the beam of light behind him and something hurls itself into the sky. Something leaps a tall building with a single bound. Like That's just... Even if you think that Miller makes uh, Superman to be a villain in this piece, that's just... That's how Superman would be. That That is how that is Superman uh, through and through. And so we have more issues going on. Issues with it, within issues... And we have uh, the sons of Batman are becoming um, a little overzealous, if I was going to say something. Well, it's just the idea that you've got mutants who basically now the mutant leader got his ass handed to him by Batman. What you what I think what Frank Miller here is pointing out is that these group, these impressionable group of youths who are just who are looking for their cult of personality. And they are looking for anyone f- as as a as a leader figure. And as soon as Batman beats the stew of the mutant leader, well, now Batman is their cult of personality because he he's the new alpha dog. 
And so they're they're taking Batman's mission, but of course they're going too far because you know that's just that's how they interpret it. Because they were do they basically they're now still being the mutant tactics, but supposedly uh, in Batman's goal. And it's people like Doctor Walper are just piling on, like saying, "See." This validates my opinion that Batman is a menace to society and trying to pontificate their agenda by construing the uh, son of Batman's um, actions and saying, no, that Batman's completely responsible for everything they do. Right, you know, because that's the way Walper, you know, works in this book. It's like, I'm going to blame everything on Batman because it's a, because he's such an excellent scapegoat. Now, before we got into this, though, we also get that great teases about the whole, you know, the whole Cold War aspect of this book with the Soviet Union and and the United States and Cordo Maltese. And, you know, it it's that great seed laying where you don't know what that means until later on. But if but if you're paying attention, you pick up on it. Right. And I've always wanted to write either a short story or a short film. Of Vicky Vale being on the ground on Quartz of Maltese while Superman is going around and destroying everything. And then it's like, how cool would it be to see it from her perspective and how that kind of ties into Batman 89? Even though Superman's not really said in Batman 89, just like, how cool would it be to see something from her point of view? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's one of those things where I didn't get the Quartz Maltese reference back in 89 when I saw Batman 89. But now it's kind of fun to go back and figure it out because I've read Dark Knight Returns going... Oh, I see what you did there. Okay. <laughs> nice nice little nice little wink wink there. I gotcha. And we have one of our few splash pages of the book of when we have Batman and Robin just soaring through the air, which I think the art looks fantastic. It's an iconic shot from this book. I have that this is on a t shirt. I own a t shirt with this on it. I mean it's just it it it's the inspiration. Uh, Jim Lee did a recreation of this for the box set of the Dark Knight 3. If you get, like, the little special edition hardcovers. I have the gallery edition of Dark Knight Returns and this in pencil and inks. This is the cover. I mean, this is just one of those pages that is, like, this is one of those memorable shots from the entire book is this page. And once again, it's it's another thing that you notice about Frank Miller's art in this book is that some pages are messier than others, but you can tell the pages that he actually like cared about and spent the time with because the line work is much more precise than say, you know, maybe one of these pages with you know, lots of panels in it. It's like this is a splash page where he was like, No, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that everything is fine tuned on this page. Even to the point, like, when it gets later on in the book, when we get to the fun house and the tunnel of love, the line work gets very messy in there. But I think it's supposed to be like that for on a subconscious level, that it's supposed to be more intense that moment for the reader when Batman is fighting the Joker. I would agree. Absolutely. But after the splash page, we hear that Batman and Robin are going to go stake out a place and find out you know, who an old associate of Joker is to see if he knows anything. But at the same time, Commissioner Gordon is giving his final speech as commissioner as he hands off pretty much the baton, the position to cat the two now Commissioner Yindel, and how he has this very 
kind of cryptic speech and say, but like not cryptic, but like I would say very. It's very doesn't pull any punches in what what the kind of uh, responsibilities the commissioner will have in Gotham City going forward. Yeah, I mean he's he's not he's not trashing her. He's just like. This is a crappy job, and I feel for you that you now get this crappy job. Right, and then that I even love at the end of it. There's like I love the boxes. There's a strain of applause for James Gordon because how would you react to something like that? Like oh, and she will face a man who is living spirit of some something we need. She may be his enemy. She may learn from him. I wish her well. Thank you and goodbye. It's so. It's such a undiplomatic way of doing things rather than like I, I cherish the years of being in this position and I thank each and every one of you and everybody who served under me like no this like almost doom and gloom but honest about it yes exactly and then Yendel doesn't back down I mean she walks in and you know she's like I'm not gonna trash talk Gordon we it's all about making decisions and by the way let my first act as commissioner be to issue an arrest warrant for Batman which you know once again, this book is called Hunt the Dark Knight. And let's be honest, some of the best Batman stories ever are when the cops are actively going after him. I mean, it it almost makes a, a classic. I think of stuff like Batman Year One or Batman Mask of the Phantasm or Batman Begins. You know, when when he's on the wrong side of the police, it's always a, it's always a very interesting Batman story. Over the Edge as well. Oh, God. How, how could I forget <laughs> Over the Edge? Oh. I was going to say, because there, there would be one Hooser from Indiana would be very disappointed we did not bring up that in relation to Batman being chased by the police. Oh, what a great episode. What a great <laughs> episode. Um, and after, while the stakeout is going on, um, Robin gets a little impatient and goes into the Mark's room and finds herself face-to-face with this weird... Vulgar doll that it blows up and nearly kills both of them. Oh yeah, and it's once again, it's it's the it's the training. It, it it's all part of Batman saying, you know, stop making mistakes. You know, uh, and once again, going back to the fact that in this continuity, the last Robin Batman had was Jason Todd, and Jason died, and something that wouldn't be later revealed until the Last Crusade. Of how Jason died in this continuity. But still, you know, Batman is still dealing with the fact that his last Robin died. And he's trying to make sure that doesn't happen again. Right. And it's it's curious, like, how... Depending on which continuity or who you're, whose run you're reading, there are different iterations of how Jason Todd died. Like, like in Sean Murphy's White Knight... Uh, like, Jason Todd is still alive in that one. I mean, spoilers for somebody who haven't read it. I apologize, people. And then we have this, and then we have Death of the Family, and then uh, A Lonely Place of uh, Dying, and that kind of continuity, which is kind of the, I guess, usual continuity that people mostly observe. Like, oh, yeah, that really happened, and that's just commonplace, and that, that is part of Batman's history. And so it's curious to see how it's kind of been interpreted throughout the years. Yeah, well, I mean, this this book came out before Death in the Family, so you know, I I still give uh, Frank Miller credit for coming up with the idea of Jason Todd dying before the vote happened. 
Yeah, it's so strange about that, the whole vote of to kill him. But maybe we'll cover that one day. But And the rate we do it, like, who knows? Maybe uh, Jason Todd will be dead on DC uh, Titans. So we'll see what happens there. But the Joker is restless. He's getting ready for his David Letterman. I mean, uh, his, uh, his not David Letterman appearance right here. I mean, it's obvious it has to be David Letterman they're parodying here. Oh, absolutely. Which was so funny. Wasn't in the animated movie, wasn't it Conan O'Brien? I think so. Yeah. But, oh my goodness, it's so obviously David Letterman. And uh, I just laugh. Especially now that I'm old enough to know who David Letterman is, who I didn't know when when I read this book. But just the idea that, yes, we're going we're gonna to bring the Joker on late night television. Like, that's a good idea. I mean, I mean, later on you would have, um, oh, who, who, the David Endocrine show. I just, I just love the name. David Endocrine. Um, who interviewed Charles Manson? Um, Geraldo Rivera. There we go. Yes. It's something like that. It's like, it's kind of gaudy and you'd say like, no, that's just in poor taste to do something like that. But as a viewer and as a human being, you're kind of fascinated. You would watch that. And then, of course, you get the Good Morning Gotham with all the protests, like all the groups that are protesting something. Like you've got the the media council that's protesting Joker's appearance. Then you get the council. I mean, it, it's funny to me, once again, how how Frank Miller is making fun of all these groups and their opinions and how their opinions conflict with other opinions. And it, like it's, again, it's that South Park level of satire where he's just poking fun at everybody. Oh, totally. And even I love the American Hostages Guild has declared a general strike in response to the treatment of their members in the recent Libyan incident. So it's like, it really is like we're going to make fun of everybody here and we're just going to satirize it as we go. And it gets more and more amped up as this book goes along. But speaking of iconic shots, we have another one of what that could be mistaken from a cheap romance novel with Clark Kent with a shirt half open, looking at it on the bright blue skies on Wayne Manor. Oh my goodness, this is such a... And it's always an interesting shot to just show how old Bruce is and how Superman looks like he hasn't aged a day. Right, because because of him being a Kryptonian and dealing with Earth's son and keeping him relatively young, and that Clark tries to reach Bruce here. He tries to be helpful in the situation. And even Bruce says, like, hey, nobody can make you do anything you don't want to do, Clark. Saying, you don't have to follow the orders. You have your own agency. But Clark doubles down. But I love that when he says, those aren't the old days, Bruce. The world's got no room for. It's like this, Bruce. Sooner or later, somebody's going to come. Somebody's going to order me to bring you in. Somebody with authority. And when that happens, I love that in the background, we have the Hulk taking the mouse away in the background. Oh, absolutely. Which, you know, sort of an image, uh, an image of, you know, almost like America. And, like, I always feel like the Hawk is Superman and the mouse is, is Bruce. Like, that's the, like, that's the message being communicated there. The authority going after someone who is their prey. I, I, I love the symbolism in that panel. And I wasn't really struck by it until it probably was like wasn't until like 
uh, rereading it, and I just got drawn into that panel. And I, I stared at it for like a solid two minutes, and I'm like processing what that could really mean. And you're right that we have this, we have all the power in the world here, and even otherworldly power, and you're still going to try and fight, in, even if their attempts are vain. But I love it. This goes to a close-up of Bruce's face. Like, whatever happens, Clark, may the best man win. And yeah. it's just so... That's just such a Batman moment. And then and then it's soon... And, and when he says that, of course, you've got Superman going, he hears something, and it's like, vroom, I gotta go do Superman work. Which, of course, is all about the Corto Maltese uh, crisis. Because he flies off and he, he gets r- himself right in the middle of a battle between the Americans and the Soviets. Right, and I love that Reagan's wearing pretty much the American flag as a suit. In, in well, this... in the first scene, it was he was he was literally draped in the flag, and now he has an American suit, American flag suit. Uh, I mean, like I mean, this is very it obviously satirizing like how American that like Reagan is there, and it says, and I even love like the last line when we we hear from him. Meanwhile, we got God on our side, or the next best thing, anyway. Heh. <laughs> and, and he's ob- winking into the camera. <laughs> it's just like, well, you don't know what's coming for you. Nah, 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 nah. Like, real childish, but, like, he's just so proud of, like, he's he has Superman on his side. Yeah, and then you get this interesting scene of Superman where he, where his body's all in black, and the only thing that's in color is the cape. Like, that's what you need to know at Superman, is the red cape. And then he's just, like, taking out... He's taking out Russian MiGs. And I'm just like, well, well did those pilots survive? I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. What what happened to those Russian MiGs? Uh, we didn't see uh, parachutes, so... I don't know? Don't know either. But it's just kind of... It, it just, once again, it starts introducing the the questionable nature of Superman's loyalties in this book. Right. And then we we just have this really nice moment between uh, Bruce and Alfred when he's like, your accountant is wait, waits in the West Wing. Tell him I'm sick. Shan't I, uh, shan't have to lie. Uh, the refugee charity called, write him a check. And the committee for uh, prevention of obsessive behavior of middle-aged men, write him a check. Very good, sir. Your sense of humor is keen as ever, sir. I love me some saucy Alfred. I love it when Alfred gets sassy. <laughs> Alfred, what what gives? I drew you a bath, sir, and told him a picture <laughs> of a bath. <laughs> a- April Fools, sir. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not my favorite joke that Alfred told the animated series. It's when he he meets Barbara Gordon for the first time. <gasps> oh, Miss Gordon. Yes, I'll admit, I am Batman. <laughs> For some reason, I always just love that joke from him from the later uh, seasons of Batman the Animated Series. Oh, absolutely. And then, of course, we've got the Joker getting prepared for his appearance. And, you know, they're already setting up the fact that, you know, Abner is, you know, there's something about nose plugs. And, he, you know, everyone is, you know, getting all getting all obsessed with the Joker's appearance, you know. He's putting on lipstick, and, you know, Walper is like, wonderful to, show, to see you show such interest. And it's just like, seriously, this is so weird. It's just, what is what is your problem, Walper? I, I mean, he's in it, obviously he's in it for the publicity, but 
and since he's gone, he's like the the whole world is watching him right now. He's completely blind to the fact that it's obvious that Joker is playing you right now. Yeah, it's so it's so obvious. And then you know you got all these pieces going together. This is where the book really like you got to slow down and like really read this book because you've got Yendel preparing a takedown with Batman. You've got Joker getting ready for his talk show appearance. You've got Robin in the helicopter. You've got Abner and his creepy, you know, robo dolls getting involved. And you kind of still have the Cordo Maltese story going on. You know, it it kind of takes a break right now, but Frank Miller expects you to be able to juggle a lot at one time right now in the next few pages. You're right. It becomes incredibly fragmented here, and it was like, oh, like, if you could be have, like, real anxiety trying to read this, like, what's going on? Wait, what? What's? Who's doing what? Where are we right now? But it, it does have a sense of clarity through it. And I even like the seven point five in the Richter scale. What are the, have his idiots finally done it when it comes to Quantum Maltese and Batman giving uh, Robin orders saying, "If you don't, if you don't do what I say, you'll be fired. And if anything goes wrong, to say Boosters and the the helicopter will take us take you right back to the uh, uh, the cave." And that uh, I love is like, uh, does this thing pack a cloak? Yes. How'd you know about that? Old news, boss. I mean, I, I love the playful nature that that Carrie Kelly is still a kid here in this moment. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then of course you were getting the lead up to the talk show, and I, I love this. I love this line too, where he says, "I was wrong. These children don't know me. Fighting cops. It's been a while." <laughs> uh... But I love it because he he's. It's like he's going right where the cops are just so that he can draw their attention. It's like he's daring them and he wants to he wants to like put them in their place to remind them who he is. Absolutely. And the fact that like he he drops down with his cape drawn, they saying, "He can fly." And Yendo says, "Nobody can fly." But even like but the expression on her face says otherwise that she is shocked that, that he is Pulling a stunt right there's falling literally right into their hands. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, he just he just does the Batman thing. Even as he jokes about how stuff in his utility belt hasn't been used in a while. It's thermite and it's gas grenades. And it's just, he's being Batman and he's taking out an entire SWAT team because he can. And it's like, but he, he does complain that he's not as fast. Like, he... Like what was the end? Like too soon. The pain starts to cross my triceps and my chest. I keep forgetting how much harder everything has become. That it is a constant reminder that he is pushing himself far too hard in this uh, his crusade here. No, absolutely. And then it, I, this shot of Joker showing up at the David Indecrin show. Like I have the like they did a black and white statue of Joker. Uh, in the Frank Miller style, and that's the pose, that's the statue. So I got that. It's awesome. You know, that that sort of very triumphant, like with the broad chests and the, yes, I am the Joker. It's so strange because you, you think of Joker being kind of gangly, and now he's just like, has he just been... Doing chest exercises for the past couple of months since Batman's come back. Like, what is going on here? 
this reverse triangle of a chest that he's got going here. It's like you don't get to see him this buff that often. No, not at all. And 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 Frank Miller always gives everyone gets lots of chest in Frank Miller art. Let's just be honest. That is true. Um, and we have Batman taking out uh, SWAT team members left and right as uh, Carrie Kelly starts to mess with the controls of the helicopter itself. And Joker says, like, oh, like, I don't keep count of all my victims, but I'm going to kill everybody in the room right now. And everybody's like, oh, ha, 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 this is really funny. And Walper's trying to maintain control here, even though everybody knows something is going to go wrong. We just do not want to admit it right here. Oh, not at all. And then, of course, you get the weird dolls that start spraying out the Joker gas. And I'm sorry, when he when he kisses the i think they're like the jaja gabor character and that i mean we you, there's some pretty terrifying you know smile x joker deaths in comics but something about what, the way that frank miller does line work that these are some of the creepier ones you've ever seen like they just don't look they just look so unnatural it's 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 so horrific yeah, and, like, it's so strange that, I don't know if it's Josh like a boy, or there was that teacher in the 80s that was, like, promoting, like, sexual education and everything, and she had a very thick accent. Um, oh, was- that's probably it, then. I, I don't remember that very much, but I, that sounds like that sounds like something that Frank Miller would take a stab at. Yeah, but it was funny because I, I, it's so funny. In A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, they do have a talk show segment and it's no it's the dick cavett um saying like if he had a talk show it's like who would you want as a guest and like on there and want to be killed by freddy krueger josh akabor i can't stand that woman and so they killed off josh akabor in that movie and it is it's hilarious and that's when you said josh akabor that's immediately what i thought of when i was looking at this comic and i held in my hand like wow i could totally see that happening right now and how joker just plants a just a huge wet kiss on her lips, and she gets Smilex. And after that's happening, we have the the Bat helicopter decloaks and rescues Batman, while the Robo uh, babies start to kill everybody in the room. Specifically, that both the host uh, David and uh, Doctor Wolper don't die by guess. Their necks are snapped specifically. Yes, and yet I somehow don't feel so bad for Walper. I can't, I can't say I have too much empathy for that. Sorry, it makes me a terrible person, I know. But it's like, yeah, Walper, you were a dumbass. That's that's on you. In the words of the musical Chicago, he had it coming. Had it coming. He had it. <laughs> oh, I wonder how many people I could podcast with that I could make a Chicago reference and somebody would be right there on the spot. So do you know what? I say thank you. Yeah, you know, you know, that's just, you know, he, I reach for the gun. What can I say? <laughs> Game two warning shots to the head. You know, it just it's how it goes. And Batman gets back as a helicopter. He says boosters twice and nothing happens. And uh, Carrie Kelly says peel. And I love how, I love that pedal. Like, her glasses go up. Batman goes flying back into the back of the helicopter. And at full speed to the cave. And we'll switch it to the cycle. I'm not fired. And Batman smiles like, you're not fired. He's actually proud of her that she was able to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, we get the... 
this has always been a weird panel to me. Joker flying on the robot doll with all the smiling faces from the crowd from the David Endicott show. I just it's like, how's that doll flying? I just don't understand. Like that's just one of those that's just one of those WTF moments in this comic that just made me go, huh? What? I wonder if that's just supposed to be like a, a weird subjective version of it. Like did that actually happen or not? Or was it like how he thinks about it because he says so many smiles, so many spaces, all the same. I wonder if that's that's going on in Joker's head, or he literally did ride the robot around the uh, TV studio. I always thought about he was literally riding the robot around the TV studio. I think they just added to that little, you know, in my head with a little. And then we have uh, Superman destroying a tank, but at least the. These soldiers got out of the tank before he probably tossed it. All right. And then you get another one of those, like, iconic, you know, splash pages in this book. Uh, But it's interesting, though, that if you look behind it, he's lifting the tank over his head. But those those soldiers are getting shot behind him. I just spotted that. Like, you see the blood and the mud and the helmet coming off. And it's like, um, yeah, those, those guys are dead. Those guys are dead. Probably because Superman just took away their his their cover. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you got, you know, you know, you, you get everyone uh responding to Superman's intervention called the Maltese, you know, Yindel's at the T V station, you know, bagging up the bodies, and then Joker goes to visit Selena Kyle, who is running an escort service. Yeah, and two things. A, that almost a couple days into the job, and Yindel has broken her habit of being five years uh, cigarette-free and she starts smoking again. A callback to how Gordon was when he was on the job. Exactly. And then that that Joker says like the years have not been kind to Selena, and he just kind of kisses her and kind of forces himself onto her. And it's very uncomfortable. Oh, God. Very, very uncomfortable. It's just... It's just all kinds of creepiness. Yeah, and then later on we have a further report to the Sons of Batman have struck again. And Frederick does his witnesses. They cost us a, a shoplifter by chopping off his hands. I'm not sure if that... The punishment is uh, serving of the crime there. Oh, yeah, because of the, the candy bars in the magazine. Right, mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, the, the the news is saying, yeah, as yet, police report no evidence to directly link the Batman to these crimes. It's like, yeah, let's, let's we're not Walper anymore, okay? Let's not, let's not blame, let's not blame Batman for what the sons of Batman are doing. Uh, but this is also kind of interesting because you get this really short little blip here of, uh, you know, this congressman who's got an escort, you know, and it's it's very subtly like this whole idea of going back to when the general sold some arms. And now you've got this congressman with this prostitute who's obviously coming from Selena Kyle. It's like there are there is a thread to show how Joker has been manipulating the situation since the beginning. And it's not until... It's something. It's like a novel, and that you gotta be paying attention because the threads start to come together. Right, and I I, I want to know what the symbolism is of having both 
the general and now the congressman draped in American flags. Well, I th- I think it's you know, I think it's still Frank Miller's uh, satire of what we what these you know these leaders congressmen and generals like what they'll do in the name of America you know what they'll say what they'll justify in the name of America that makes sense um but then we have Batman and Robin on the motorcycle and sidecar respectively and it says this unit has its own controls how it detached and I think that's a nice callback to at least the Batman 66 movie when the Bat Cycle could detach and Robin could drive the side cycle a little bit. Oh, you know Frank Miller was doing that completely. You know that's what he was doing. Oh, totally. Now, if you had a choice, would you take the Batman 66 Batmobile or the motorcycle? Oh, the Batmobile. Because, you know, I want, you know, I want, you know, my... I want my engines to power, turbines to speed. I'm like, that was a sweet car. That was a really sweet car. Uh, even, like, the, the sound of the engine turning on was iconic. Like, that, that little... Like, it billowing up, and it goes screeching out of the Batcave. Do you know what? Dang it. I may have to watch a Batman 66 when I go to bed tonight. I think I may just throw on one of the Blu-rays and just watch an episode or two. Oh, yeah. And I also love the fact that, you know, Yendel is trying to investigate, you know, more like street, the, the death of this congressman who gets killed when a SWAT team member tries to, you know, stop him from standing outside naked with the American flag. And, you know, there's Batman disguising himself as a cop right under Yendel's nose and just totally pulls it off. It's like, uh, like, yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Commissioner uh, O'Halloran, ma'am. Six prison. Anything wrong? And this it is like, hey, weren't you just, hey, stop that man! And seeing uh, Batman in disguise just run through a group of SWAT officers and make it back to the motorcycle, even though he does take a bullet in the process. Right, and I love that line of how much longer have I got? Because you just feel like there's like this ticking, there's this ticking clock of, he can't keep going like this. No, it's going to catch up to him eventually, but he's going to push himself um, constantly throughout. However, that's why we keep getting the updates of how tougher this is for him. So you wonder, is he going to make it to the end? I know it says Hunt for the Dark Knight. Are they going to catch him? If this is your first time reading it, you wonder, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to get away or not. No, yeah. And and by the next... By the next page where we've got Superman and Coda Maltese. What great setup that, like, because you still don't really know what happened in the intervening years. Like, Frank Miller never spells it out for you. He just hints at it. And this is where you get this is, the like, the one page where you really kind of start to get the idea of what happened. Because Superman has this dialogue, this, this inner monologue that says, you were the one they used against us, Bruce. The one who played it rough. When the noise started from the parents' groups and the subcommittee called us in for questioning, you were the one who laughed, that scary laugh of yours. Sure, we're criminals, you said. We've always been criminals. We have to be criminals. And, of course, a great line that was repurposed for Batman v Superman. Love that line. 
and but just the idea that there were subcommittees and that you know almost because remember this book came out before Watchmen, but it's so interesting that they have the same idea that basically there was you know like acts of Congress that like banned superheroes, and that's why everyone went underground, you know. Two writers in two different parts of the ocean coming up with the exact same idea in the exact same year, you know, and, and then what would later be used again by like Darwin Cook and James Robinson to explain the disappearance of the Justice Society before the appearance of the Justice League. The idea that you know these subcommittees, you know, would make the heroes would basically outlaw heroes, and that kind of hints at why the future is the way it is in the Dark Knight Returns. Is that when we have the JSA literally in costume in the courtroom facing Congress at that point? Yes, that that's a new... Darwin Cook did that in The New Frontier, and then James Robinson did it again in a book called JSA The Golden Age. Yes. And that's always kind of marked as, like, why the JSA disappears for a period of time. It marks the end of The Golden Age, and then we get the Justice League appearing with The Silver Age. But that's the story that gets told... In uh, in Darwin Cook's The New Frontier. Which I still need to get. <sighs> I know! I know! But believe me, I, I, walk into my, I walk into my local comic book store and I'm like, I wish I made more. Because, like, A, it has all the omnibus of Jeff John's uh, run of JSA and Green Lantern. And I'm like... Oh, I want you. I want all of those, but I'm like, I can't drop all this at once. But I need to read more JSA, and I need to re- I need to get New Frontier. Those are my those are on my hit list for sure. Yeah. Oh, you definitely need to get New Frontier. That's some that's some good stuff. That's what good. Is, would that be on the DC Universe website? That'd be a question to ask that I will check out later. Oh, I think the I'm I, I'm not even sure if the, the I think the movie is the at the adaptation may be on DC Universe at this point. That makes sense. But uh, Batman and Robin arrive at Selina's apartment after the escort service proved to have no, no information there, and that we find Selina hogtied, beaten up, and dressed as Wonder Woman. This is a weird page, man. I I still to this day don't know how to take this page. And, and and you and you still get the idea of of Bruce and Selena having a thing like it's always been weird to me. This this page makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, because you wonder did Joker do something to her in the in interim? Like other than we what we see, I'm like I hope to God not, but probably did. And how we find out what his plan is that it's going to be. Um, the county fair, and there's gonna be thousands of kids. And he's gonna poison uh, the uh, ice cream there. No cotton candy. The it's cotton, cotton candy, candy man. Excuse me. And then Batman and Selena share a kiss. Kind, yeah, yeah. And then of course they have to leave very quickly. And there's this great moment where like Batman saves Robin, and of course you get the iconic "Good soldier, good soldier." You know, the idea of, uh, you know, once again, the idea that I'm not going to lose another Robin. You know, because he, he, he mentioned before, like in book one, that's what he called Jason. He called Jason a good soldier. So it's just that, that sort of father-daughter moment where Batman makes sure that he doesn't lose another Robin. And that's his highest compliment he can pay a Robin is calling them a good soldier. 
you see that that little beat between saying good soldier once and then the second time that makes that line a little more impactful than it's the only line I have a problem with in the Dark Knight Returns movie. It just I, doesn't have the punch it should have. Not it, at all. Well, it reads it too flat, for my opinion. I agree. I completely agree. It's like, good soldier, good soldier. It's like, no, there's no gusto behind it. There's no intention behind the dialogue right there. He's just reading it just, like, as is. There's no, there's no like, to compliment or to... Uh, to relax or anything like that. There's no intention behind that word right there. And that's something, as a filmmaker, I'm like, uh, I, I, one thing, whenever I write something, uh, I'm trying to do it to an act, uh, convey it to an actor, I put, a, I put an intention behind every line to how to shape the performance of how I feel the scene should go. But how Weller re- reads it, it's just like, it's just very, just flat for me. There's no other way I could describe it as. Yeah. And then, you know, as this continues, Batman tells Yindel, you've got to save the governor. I've got to, you know, I've got to go take care of Joker. And then the next page, though, you know, it's still Superman, like, tearing up the Soviet fleet. But I like the inner monologue because I don't feel like this gets enough credit that we understand where Superman is coming from in this continuity. Because he talks about, you know... We almost threw a party when you retired, but then the FBI was in it, and things were getting out of hand, and there was that trouble with Oliver. I love the little wink-wink there. And at the end, it was like, uh, they were considering their options, and you were probably still laughing when we came to terms. I gave them my obedience and my invisibility. They gave me a license and let us live. No, I don't like it, but I get to save lives, and the media stays quiet. And now the storm is growing again. They'll hunt us down again because of you. So it's so it's even Superman saying, I don't particularly like what I'm doing, but it's the only way for me to be able to operate, to save people's lives, and to keep everyone from turning on the rest of us. And so I think – I don't think enough credit is given that, you know – he does say that. Like, we understand that Superman is in a situation he doesn't particularly agree with, but he kind of sees it as the best out of a bad situation. Is he trying to convince himself that he made the right decision in that, in, at this point? I think so. I mean, why else would you be saying this to yourself? Just running over decisions you made in the past, and like, yeah, that was the right decision, and then you rationalize it in any way possible, even though we, as the reader, realize, like, there's something that probably was not right there. And if I had to guess that since Oliver is such a being a uh, very progressive person and man of the people, signing over to something to that kind of authority is something that he would not agree with, and that's probably what led to their conflict, whatever it was. Exactly. And then I'm going to tell you, by the time we get to the next page, this is when the book, like, this is when the book went downhill for me as a seven-year-old. Because... You get all these dead Boy Scouts because of the poison cotton candy. And the fight that breaks out between Batman and Joker. Like, this is the part of the book that gave me nightmares. This is the part of the book that made me slap this sucker shut. And I didn't read it for the next 23... I literally did not read it for the next 23 years because of what we're about to get into. This disturbed me as a 7-year-old, which is why I should not have been reading this as 7. No, I mean, it was probably... Probably not the best decision in the world to do that, but it makes sense. And then we have 
they could put me in a helicopter, fly me up into the air, and line the bodies head to toe on the ground in, in a delightful geometric patterns, like an endless June Taylor dancer's routine. And it would never be enough. No, I don't keep count, but you do, and I love you for it. That he's relishing in this moment here, and how devilish he is at this point. Oh yeah, and and then you know the the fight breaks out because he, of course, you get that great line where he's like, "This will end tonight." It's like you just, you know, you always love those story. You always love those stories when Batman's like, "No, this is I have had enough." Because he had that line earlier in the book where he talked about, "Think of all the people I've murdered by letting you live." You know what a what a great you know. There's always that interesting time in any Batman story where he acknowledges the people who have died because he hasn't taken care of the Joker. Because there's been numerous articles, papers, and videos made about how Batman's worse for Gotham City because of his one rule to say like how many people died in catastrophes because he just puts. People, puts the criminals into the revolving door of the Arkham Asylum and how they constantly get out and cause mayhem because of his inability to cross the line. Right, exactly. And then, of course, at the bottom of this page is where we get that classic line uh, with Joker referring to Batman as Darling. Which I think is really... I feel like that one... I feel like that one caption has defined the Batman Joker relationship ever since there has been, I, I think all the way, I mean, I feel like, you know, if you watch Batman and, and Joker in the animated series, all the way to Christian Bale and Heath Ledger in the dark Knight, you know, th- I, I feel like that one choice, that one word has really helped redefine in the modern era, the relationship between Batman and the Joker. That they're symbiotic, that they cannot live without each other. Even though Batman won't admit it, Joker is like, oh no, this is this is a love story between the two of us. Anybody else is just periphery, including Harley Quinn, which she's not part of the story. But when Harley is written in a story when the three of them are together, that Harley is not is just a background. She is a side. She was a what would I say? She is that Batman and Joker are the. A story and Harley and everybody else is just a B story in their relationship. Absolutely. And then, of course, we get a great big fight. You know, gas. Robin's taking care of the Abner and the Robo dolls. And then, of course, this is the part in the fight that really got to me as a kid when Batman throws his, you know, razor batarangs and. Joker takes one in the eye socket, and it stays there for the entire rest of the book. I mean, it, it, it is cliche to say for this, but, like, Joker with a battering in his eye is iconic. And it is something that is just defining of their, of this two's conflict. And so, it's just so funny, like, how people try to top it in comics or in movies, right? Like, how... How beat up they would, how much destruction they'll do to each other's bodies. But just a simple battering into Joker's eyes, like ah, that is Batman Joker through and through. Oh yeah, and then of course he's finding him in this house of mirrors. The Joker takes a kid 
uh, hostage. The kid um, is about to, you know, curse. And I just love how Batman just leans next to the kid and says, watch your language, son. And the boy just goes, yes, sir. <laughs> really big speech bubble with really tiny letters that just says, yes, sir. That's what you call juxtaposition, folks. Yep. And uh, we, oh, go on. No, it's just, but but it, I almost feel like that that's part of Frank Miller's like message here is just like like Batman has just got this authority that when he's firm and and he's so he knows what's right and he's so firm and everyone just kind of goes yes sir like that's you know I. This is the part where you kind of get into debates where some people want to say that Frank Miller's interpretation of Batman, especially in Dark Returns, is, is he fascist? And I know Grant Morrison likes to say he's more libertarian. You know, it, it's always it's always interesting to see where people land on what do they think of Frank Miller's interpretation of Batman and what is he saying about society and what is Batman's place in society? You know, he, he I've seen interviews with Frank Miller where he's like, no, the man is psychotic. The the man is is mentally deranged, but yet it seems to be, you know, kind of taking a line from the Dark Knight. You know, he's the hero we deserve. And so I'm always that's always kind of interesting, especially with this line where he tells the kid to, you know, not curse. And the kid just immediately like shuts his mouth and like acquiesces to Batman's orders. Well, yeah, I, I mean, then. It- like, if you want to say if anybody you could argue who's a fascist in this book, it's more like Superman, which I know is a easy joke to make about Frank Miller's writing of Superman within the context of this book. And, and like, but I even say, like, that Batman helps the people in the next book and everything, so he's like, not exactly a fascist or anything, but Frank Miller's right. The man is psychotic. I mean, politics is not really coming to as a factor when it comes when it, when it comes to rationalizing his actions I mean it's the same thing with Rorschach like even though like everybody in the Watchmen has a certain point of view of what they should do I mean it, it, the only person who seems like honest with himself is the comedian in that book but that's that's just my take on Watchmen yeah I yeah because that's always a, that's a book about extremes and how all the and how everyone who goes to an extreme and you know, people like to take that line, never compromise, even the face of Armageddon, and, and take that like a battle cry. But in that book, as far as Alan Moore's going, no, it's, it's never compromising. That's the problem. Yeah, you're so stringent that you'll never compromise when compromise is something that be able to help each other, reach across the aisle, help your fellow man and everything. And it's because it's non-compromising. That's why Rorschach dies. I mean, and you wonder, like, that compromise, that's why Dan's able to have a happy life afterwards. And so, it's, but we'll talk about the Watchmen another day. Back to Dark Knight Returns. And so, Robin's having this battle with Abner here. And she's using her slingshot. She accidentally hits a kid. And she's like, whoops. And then tries again. She's able to send the robo-baby off it and blows up. But, and then he comes, Abner comes ch- charging after and says, so as to strangle the life out of her. And it's just like, he smells like milk. That's something that just really sticks out to me. It's, something, it's a dire situation, but that's a detail that she zeroes in on in that moment. Yeah, and then he gets, like, 
run over or smash. It's like, ugh. It's just gross. It's really gross. And then Batman and Joker having their fight in the Tunnel of Love, where Joker has just, like, shot all these people, and Batman's just looking at all these dead people going, I vow that these are the last victims you will ever have. And and once again, going back to the fact that Batman and Joker have their final fight in the Tunnel of Love. I, I that That is by no means coincidental in this book. It's not quite subtle, nor is it subtle. It's meant to be, like, blatant to the reader. Yeah, and it's... The one thing I will say, something I appreciated about the animated adaptation that is lacking in the graphic novel is the amount of color. Like, you you could almost forget that this is that tunnel of love because it just goes back to being darks and blacks and grays, where it's all the pinks and reds and purples in the animated adaptation. Which I, I kind of like. I, I feel like it re-emphasizes the locale of where this fight is taking place. As well as is accompanied by the beautiful Christopher Drake score that builds and builds into that moment that, when he fight, that Joker finally kills himself. Oh, yeah. And, and the well, – because you, Batman snaps his neck. Now, he doesn't kill him, but he breaks his neck so that he's paralyzed well, he, – he's paralyzed – while Joker is just shiving him mercilessly, it is a it is an intense scene. It's one of those scenes where I feel like the animated adaptation is a little bit more powerful, simply because I feel like it it more impactfully communicates how vicious this fight is than this sort of panel. Because Frank never does a lot of sequential panels, there's a lot of gaps in the panels about what happened in between where you, as the reader, have to fill in the blanks, which is not a problem. But there is something about the way that uh, Jay Oliva directs that where like he's just like, shink, 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 shink. And then he's like, and then Batman snaps the Joker's neck. Oh, it's really powerful, and but also Abner's death is different in the animated movie rather than that he just falls and he and it's the impact of his body that busts up his head that his like his cardigan gets caught in the gears of the uh, roller coaster that drags his head and then his head is crushed by the gears of the roller coaster like that is intense and. But even in the book, it's kind of unclear if that Kerry Kelly's responsible for his death or he just fell on his own accord. Right. But there is a really but, – but this scene where Joker snaps his own neck is disturbing as all get out. But I love the dialogue. It's like just an ounce or two more of pressure. And do I hear sirens? Yes, coming close. You won't get far. But then it doesn't matter. If you do, they'll kill you for this, and they'll never know that you didn't have the nerve. And and and, and it's just the fact that this is like the Joker's like last laugh is that you still didn't kill me, you still didn't kill me, but I'm gonna kill myself, and they're gonna blame you for it. It's like only the two of us will know that you never actually did it. Yeah, it's finally what happens when the 
immovable object and unstoppable force finally had their final battle in this moment here. And that the fact that he wasn't able to kill him will haunt Bruce to his final days. Oh, and and that final panel, once again, so iconic. Like, so many panels in this book. You know, you got the dead Joker with the battering stick in his eye and the bleeding Batman just laying there next to him. And then that's how the book ends. Now, if you're a reader reading it, like, you probably wanted how, what, you probably so godsmacked wondering what can happen. Whereas in the first two books ended on a nice conclusion. And, but here it is a cliffhanger. You're wondering how they're going to get out of this and what's going to happen between him and Superman if that kind of is resolved in any way. Well, but it's, it's such a great, it's a great penultimate book. It's like, it, it's that ultimate setup when you're like, well, of course, because, you know, the next issue is the series finale. And so it's a great way to end it. And it, it, once again, it's the idea that it feels like every book has its own villain. You no, know, book one was Two-Face. Book two was Mutant Leader. Book three is Joker. You know, spoiler, book four is Superman. But... What If you stop and look at the book, you suddenly realize that Joker has been the real problem all along. Joker has orchestrated all of the events. If you go back and look at all the connective tissue throughout all the issues, it's just... And I, and I always find that interesting that it's like Joker is dead by the end of book three, but his presence is still felt... In book four, and Joker is responsible for setting up the ultimate interaction between Batman and Superman at the end of book four. It's just when people say, question, does the Joker really look like a man with a plan? Yes, to excruciating details, and he will play the long con when it involves Batman. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's so. It's so intricate, and that's why I love it so much. But I will go back and tell you that this was the book that made me, like, slap this thing shut and go, (laughs) Like, that that image of Joker with the battering sticking in his eye, like, haunted me for years. Ah, jeez. Now, if you were to be able to pick a favorite moment of this issue, what would it be? Ooh, favorite moment... I'm still going to go back. I mean, I'm not sure it's a moment. I just, the splash page we talked about, and as much as the moment freaked me out, it was the fact of, you know, finally seeing Batman and Joker. Like, this is this is Frank Miller's version of the final battle between the two. Very nice. Uh, I think it might be when... Carrie Kelly saves him off the roof and dealing with the SWAT team, and she asks her, am I fired? You're not fired, with a smile on his face. It, it, it's something that, it, that he is so prideful in that moment right there. Obviously, the, the splash page is iconic. And even when they first arrive at the county fair, and Batman is glum because Carrie Kelly's arm tight, hand tightens around his arm, realizing what has happened and what they're about to deal with. That's a great moment in this book. I, I mean... Throw a dart in any of these panels, and it's an iconic moment of this book. I mean, you, it would be hard to choose a favorite moment, but I think that's going to be my choice right there. Those two moments right there. Those are going to be like runner-ups there. Yeah, I think 
Except for the Joker, I, I do feel like personally this is – and it's saying something because this is a great book. But I do feel like that individually this is one of the weaker books of the four. Do you think it's because it's all set up for the finale? Yeah, it's a lot of setup. It's a ton. Of, it it pays off some of the Joker stuff, but it's also weird that the the finale with the Joker isn't the finale of the story. And it, it and all the Superman stuff is set up for book four. So I'm not saying it's a bad book, but I do have to say that if it, since we are reading this book by book. And not treating it as one whole graphic novel, I would have to, in my estimate, call this the weakest, the weakest of the four, in my opinion. Well, something has to be, be but I mean, I guess that's just a testament to how, like, and we still enjoy this book, this issue to begin with, but it's just like, something has to be the least favorite of these four, and... I guess that's why a lot of people have a lot of problems with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince because so much of it is set up for the Deathly Hallows that I can understand where you're coming from that this being the weakest one for you. Yeah, speaking of half I don't have a problem with Half-Blood Prince. I just think it makes a... I think the movie was awful. But the book was, like, an amazing character study. Which is kind of what goes on this one. It's like this interesting character study of... like. Especially of Superman. Like, I feel like this is the book that gives you the most understanding of Superman in this continuity. Uh, even so, more than you ever get in book four. Because by book four, it really kind of all becomes about the fight. But this is where you kind of understand where Superman's coming from. Right. I mean, Half-Blood Prince is my second favorite of the series behind Chamber of Secrets. So... And I, 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 and that's something that used to be my least favorite in that series. But going through it again, it really it rose to near the top. It is a nice character uh, study of both Batman and Superman, and setting up their dichotomy that's going to come to a head here. But there, there is a one point where Superman does dive down to the ocean floor and punches it, cracking the Earth's crust. There, that's got to be a little questionable on Superman's behalf. Yeah, it's just, uh, well, what can we say? I mean, I just, it, it's just, it's a very tight book in that there, it just, it just moves along and it gets done what needs to get done. You know, it, that's, it's got some, it's got a lot of, it's, it's got to pave a lot of road for the rest of the book. And so that's like, usually for a lot of books, that's usually like what the first issue is like. And, but the first issue is so iconic because that's like the it literally is the Dark Knight Returns, and so I feel like that one gets that one just seems so much stronger, especially when you base it on what this entire story is technically supposed to be about. Right. All right. And do you have any final thoughts you want to say on Dark Knight Returns Book Three: Hunt the Dark Knights? I think I've said everything that I need to say. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward book. It's got some cool moments. Joker is probably some of the creepiest Joker you'll ever see in any Batman comic. And, um, you know, then we're just we're just ready for the big hoedown in book four at this point. I have to echo your sentiment. Yeah, it is, it is set up, but it, it's, at least it's peppered with a lot of action throughout to make it very interesting. I mean, it, but also it kind of... 
change the relationship between Batman and Superman forever, for better or for worse, and depending on who you ask. Yeah, it really depends on who you ask. But as we are fond of saying in our network, it's all subjective. Drink. Uh, you know. <laughs> yes. I got to bring I, I I have infected your podcast with it. It's, uh, my work here is done. I, I, I dropped that sentence, uh, sentence on Please Rewind a few episodes back, and it, it, Jamie just screamed out, Drink! And so I was happy about that. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, that was my joke, by the way. I'm glad to see it's taken on a life of its own. It really has. I mean, between that and Andy uh, making Blue Devil references on Hold the Bad Case, when I say that was my joke, saying everybody has to take a drink for it, I mean, it's really getting out of hand, and we're turning our fan- the fans into alcoholics. Oh, we were already alcoholics. Now we just have a reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was tinged with darkness. Um, all right. If you want people to follow you on your podcast and social media, Scott, where can they people find you? Oh, well, you can find me on Twitter at ScottDC27. Uh, you can find the show at Suicide Squadcast. You can also find the entire network of shows at SuicideSquadcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Vero. Basically, anywhere that you can find on social media, you know, you will find us. Just look for the Suicide Squadcast or the Suicide Squadcast Network. Yep, and support my Patreon. As a patron myself, it, it is awesome, all the stuff that they, they upload. And it, it's especially Ray's rants about football. I mean, that's some of the most entertaining stuff that come from the network in, in the past couple of weeks. Uh, I know I, I I jumped in on some of that goodness in there too because I was like you know had to throw in a little bit for my for, for my team. What can I say? Yeah, it was so funny. I was listening to that while I was cutting. I was video monitoring the NFL, so it was like I'm like I have I have I have college football in my ears and NFL in my eyes. This is it's just a football day for sure when I was listening to that. Awesome. Awesome. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, and my, my, other, my other show, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show, which you can find at RF4RM.com with all the other real fans for Real Movies podcasts. And my YouTube channel, and, well, and then, oh, excuse me. If you before I go any further, be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five star written review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out there. And if you want people who to listen to this show, it's a, share it with your friends. I mean, I would be, I would be eternally grateful if you did so. Now, speaking of being grateful, Scott, thank you so much for taking time every night to talk about Dark Knight Returns Book Three. Oh, yeah, and we'll wait another six months before we talk about book four. It's just no. the way it goes. No, 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 no. We're doing this before the end of the month. We're doing this before the end of the year. We're getting back and we're finishing this up. I make a promise to you for that. <laughs> is that your vow? It is my final vow for sure. Now, everybody, come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture, and we'll be speaking to you soon. <laughs>